Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week I had the pleasure to speak with Lydia Slater, editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar UK. Plus, Monaco's Charlie Filmer Court pays a visit to a new exhibition at Somerset House on the classic comic strip, Bino. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show on a glamorous note, featuring Harper's Bazaar UK, the iconic fashion title. I had the pleasure to welcome in studio its editor-in-chief, Lydia Slater, to discuss the new December issue and the Women of the Year Awards. Here is Lydia with more. I've worked at Harper's Bazaar pretty much all my life <laughs> um, because the very first article I ever had published was in Harper's and Queen, as it was called then, and um, it was for their teen issue. So I was 17 and that was my first experience of proper journalism, which was very exciting. And so maybe because of that, I guess I've always just really loved it and felt very much at home there. So then I went back and rejoined as a features editor in the late 1990s. It was still Harper's and Queen and it was a really fun time. I don't know if you remember the era of the Sloan Ranger, but it was it was then and also obviously it was the the 1990s as fabulous fashion, so it was it was a really great time to be on a glossy magazine. And then I left and I went to the Sunday Times Style and just went off and did other things. And then in 2015, I was approached and asked to interview to be deputy editor. And so I went back and I haven't left. I was deputy editor for four years and then Justine Piketty, the previous editor-in-chief, left and so I took over from her then and it's been quite a ride with the pandemic and trying to bring out a glossy magazine without photographers, (laughs) without models, without clothes. It's been very challenging. So, yeah. But I have to say, Lydia, yeah, it's definitely been a ride. I mean, how difficult this year with the pandemic and everything, especially in the luxury sector, there's been a lot of questions. But I mean, to be fair, when I looked at the, you know, the latest Harper's Bazaar, it looks just from the naked eye, a very healthy magazine. I mean, still, I, I love to see even the number of pages in a magazine. It still looks kind of a lot of advertising, a lot of interesting stories. Still very exciting. doesn't look like a magazine that is slimming down. Or Do you know what I mean? So there's been a, kind of a positive story here as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think that where we've benefited is probably because we, you know, we have a very clear position in the market. It's, um, it's a, a very upmarket fashion magazine, but it's more than a fashion magazine. It's also a literary magazine magazine. It's got a, a great focus on, on art and culture generally. And, you know, the people that buy Harper's Bazaar, you know, are very loyal and, and they stick with us and it's, it's, it's great. And also, I think we benefited because during the pandemic, people couldn't get to the shops and obviously they weren't traveling, but we did get a, a substantial rise in subscriptions. So those subscribers have remained with us and that's that's been really great. That's amazing. And, and, and again, you mentioned culture, art. I mean, I think that's what sets Harper's Bazaar apart from other fashion titles as well. It's incredible the dedication the magazine had to art as well. Only last month in the November issue you had the 66-page art special. I think that's quite incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's always been one of the cultural pillars of the magazine. And as you know, it's 
we've got a fantastic legacy. We've had amazing artists working for us, doing our covers in the you know 1930s. They they would have people like Echte would be doing the covers, and then we had photographers like Richard Avedon, and you know that legacy is still incredibly important, and we try and maintain it. So we celebrate women in art specifically. Obviously, we have a largely female readership, but we also feel that women artists don't get so much attention, and we would like to bring them to the fore. So that's the focus of our art magazine. It was guest edited by Lubaina Himid, who, as you know, has a huge exhibition at the Tate. And um, so, yeah, we're really proud to do that. But also we feel that, you know, our our audience really sort of respond to that and and love it. So, yeah, we'll carry on doing that. That's fantastic. Let's let's move on. I mean, for some quite exciting events, the Harper's Bazaar Women of the Year Awards. Uh, tell us a bit more about the awards and how important it is for, for the brand, for Harper's Bazaar itself. Well, it's uh, Women of the Year. We've been doing it for the past decade about and it's a really fabulous glittering event. It takes place at Claridge's and we celebrate the women who are at the the peak of the pillars of the magazine. So we celebrate fashion, we celebrate the women in art, in film, in theatre. But this year, because it's been so very difficult, we wanted to do something, something more. And we've instituted some different awards. So we've got an activist award. Uh, we've got, we're uh, honouring a woman for her philanthropy. And for the first time ever, we have asked our readers to nominate a woman who they think deserves an award for the positive change that she's brought about in her community. And it was a conscious decision because what makes Women of the Year so wonderful and glamorous also makes it a little bit inaccessible. And we wanted to be able to bring in the women that don't get celebrated but do amazing things. So we asked our readers to nominate the women that they that they wanted to see join us there on the night. And um, we whittled it down to a short list of three and then we interviewed them all. And I must say, they, they are all so, so impressive. That's fantastic. And one thing, you know, Lydia, that I'm very happy, look at both of us here, we're talking in studio, real life, right? Yeah, which, is, yeah. which is quite nice face to face. I mean, there's the Harper's Bazaar Women of the Year Awards. And I know for Bazaar, this type of events are very important. I believe you also have a summit, kind of some sort of conference, which is also quite nice. Is that, are those type of events important for Harper's Bazaar? Do they mean a lot, especially when it's in the physical, in, in presence in a way? Yeah, I mean, so this year's Women of the Year Awards, because we couldn't do it last year, was extra special and it's the same with the summit. So the summit is a day-long conference for women in... Well, it's for women in in leadership, I guess. And what it was something that I brought to the magazine because... When I arrived, I was given this collar. It was a, it was a sort of quarterly feature called Bazaar at Work, and it tended to focus on workwear. And I knew from obviously from from my own years of working what you know the issues that that used to come up again and again. And I was really interested in exploring them. And so we made it a monthly feature, and then we started to do monthly events where we would get speakers to come and what started to happen was that we would get uh, they would sell out and it was incredibly interesting for me because 
we would then meet the bizarre reader and it gave us a really good handle on who she is. And what I really loved was that who she is is who I think she is. Obviously, she's interested in fashion, but she's very savvy. She's successful. She's intellectually curious. You know, she's she's a sort of the great person that you want to have in, you know, at your dinner. And so I, I have come to really value those events as a way of connecting in very sort of directly with the reader and hearing exactly what she wants us to to talk about. So the summit is is that sort of times 10. And I always feel like it, it's it's sort of the, the day that the magazine comes to life. And we try to make it really engaging. So it's a mix of it's a mix of panel discussions. We've got sort of interactive sessions. We have we'll have a, a life coach doing coaching the room, but we also will have cover stars that will come and talk. And because it's uh, quite an intimate event, it's not huge, partly obviously for COVID reasons, but also because we never want our events to be huge because we want people to be able to network with each other and also to talk to the speakers and, and you know, really have that sort of um, intimacy and connection that you can't get with a really huge event. So, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy going to them. I really enjoy running them. And I think that the readers really appreciate it, too. Lydia, tell me a bit more about the December issue. I know it's been out on the newsstand just for a couple of days. I mean, what has been the highlights? It's quite an important issue, I would say, as well, close to Christmas as well. Yes. So for the first time, we've got a joint December-January issue, which has enabled us to... So it's quite it's quite big and fat, which is like great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because it's Women of the Year, we have done several covers. So you can choose the cover that you like the best, or you can collect all of them that's the dream <laughs> and our covers are Claire Foy um, so these are all women who came on the night and, and were celebrated so Claire Foy basically for her body of work for the queen in the crown but also for her latest films The Electoral Life of Louis Wayne and then Jodie Comer for obvious reasons um, it's excellent yes we have Cynthia Erivo and we also have Sarah Snook for succession. So there are those four covers and then inside the portfolio we celebrate all the women who were there on the night with profiles and, and shoots. So that's that's really the main focus. But obviously we also have our gift guide and we also have the you know beautiful party fashion and uh, the the sort of run in our talking points we have everything cultural that you want to do, the Fabergé exhibition um, we have also another cover which is exclusively on sale at the V&A, which is celebrating the Fabergé. So it's a sort of very glamorous mix of seasonal fabulosity. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. And I, I think I know which cover I would buy. I mean, I, I love all of them, but I do love Succession. So oh, I think Sarah's Nick would be, would, be, <laughs> would be an amazing choice. And one thing, Lydia, you, you mentioned joint cover. How do you interact with the other international editors of Harper's Bazaar? Is it quite a lot of collaboration? Is something changing there or how, how does it work? I think that um, all publishers are increasingly looking for that sort of cross-border collaboration. I mean, we have always worked closely with our American edition. We take their content, they take our content. Bazaar UK is a, uh, is a big 
contributor to the international editions. So uh, they they will very often take our fashion content, things like that. But we are looking to collaborate closely with the with the Americans. Thank you very much, Lydia. And their December issue is out now. I know which cover I'm getting. And finally on the show, Monaco's Charlie Fumer Court pays a visit to a new exhibition at Somerset House in London. It's called Bino, The Art of Breaking the Rules, and it's a delight for all fans of the iconic comic strip. Bino is, I think, the longest-running comic probably in the world. It's, it started in 1938 and it's still going. It's kind of outlived many of its rivals, like the, the dandy and the... Buster, you know, and it's so, but it's a children's comic and it, yeah, started 1938 as a kind of evolved out of the funny pages that, you know, were becoming popular in newspapers and a little bit influenced by uh, uh, cartoons that were appearing in Scottish newspapers like the Sunday Post, things like Oh Woolly and the Bruins, and then it became its own standalone children's comic. It kind of crystallised in the Beano that we know today, pretty much crystallised or sedimented into the formula that still goes on in the in the 1950s which was sort of the golden age of the comic and that's when all the main characters emerged often in one go you got Dennis the Menace, Minnie the Minx, the Bass Street Kids and Roger the Dodger were all created in the early 1950s by three cartoonists called uh, Davy Law, Ken Reed and Leo Baxendale and pretty much since then the comic has revolved around those same central protagonists and those central protagonists all have one thing in common which is that they're about it's about very normal domestic situations they're very regular kids and they just get into trouble you know they just either break the rules they disrupt the surroundings they upset their parents so it's a kind of there's a sort of mild anarchy at the center of it it's sort of and it's all about kind of kids trying to get what they want and get away with it and not always getting away with it so that once that kind of premise became solid in the 50s it's pretty much stayed the same way ever since and those are the same characters you get on the cover today and you mentioned obviously that yes yeah, it's got probably you know more than 80 years of history behind it how important a place does the Beano hold in British culture well what I was trying to do with the exhibition I think was answer that question you know what what is has the Beano had a kind of cult what is its influence you know what's its cultural legacy because so many kids grew up reading this comic and still will grow up reading this comic. For me, I was like absolutely immersed in it. But you read it, I think between the age of like six, seven, until maybe 10, 11. And, you know, you really, you read it every week and you're absolutely lost in its pages. But that's before the point, you know, as a kid, obviously you get, you get infatuations with all sorts of things, TV shows and books and, you know, hobbies. And you don't always think about um, them afterwards. That like many of them, you let them go. And they just like one day you put down your last Beano and you barely remember having doing it. And it, remains so it's a little bit hard to trace you know like there's so many kids read it but not many artists would cite it as an influence or, or kind of authors would be like oh yes uh, the Beano so I was trying to kind of work out a little bit the answer to that by making the exhibition like what is the Beano why why is it so successful because it keeps on like that formula as much as the world has changed with the invention of kids tv and the internet and smartphones and computer games you know people kids still love to read the Beano so there's something in it, you know, there's something in it that holds our, captures our imagination still, and it resonates, like it, it really, obviously, it really, it taps into something in British culture. So I was, I was trying to kind of make sense of that, that history. 
but that's just a, you know sorry that's like an answer that says i don't you know my my attempt to answer your question is the exhibition which is kind of uh but i would say that um you know there are for me i mean i can answer the answer personally which is like uh i i you know, read it intensely and loved it and i used to copy out the characters and like use it to almost learn to draw you also must learn it use it to learn to read really because it's sort of one of the first things that you sort of buy with your own pocket money and read yourself and um and then for me, it was a kind of gateway into wanting to make comics and buy comics. And then soon that led into wanting to be an artist and wanting like loving to loving drawing and loving storytelling and and uh, world building, I guess. So I figured if it was important for me, you know, this comic is a gateway into art. Maybe it was for other people. So I started to kind of ask other artists if they'd read it and like what if it was important to them. And I found out, of course, it, it was. I should say like one one person who was smart enough to realize his influence was David Bowie, who when he was asked for his 100 most important he wrote he did a list of his 100 most important kind of cultural books and he was like in the list is like Madame Bovary and the home of the Iliad and somewhere sandwiched between those two is the Beano you know so he he realized that it was like it had this important cultural influence and but that like I think again that shows his like his level of perception but it also makes sense because it's about creating really crazy characters you know the Beano is full of exaggerated versions of Dennis is, you know, one side of your personality takes over. Dennis is purely rebellious. He's purely a kind of anti-hero menace. Or Billy the Wiz is just extremely fast. And Calamity James is just terribly unlucky. So, you know, they just have this one and ultimately happy in that one version of themselves. So I think it makes sense that Bowie would kind of recognise that as a, uh, an influence on himself. And I think when you start to pick it apart, you can see the influence all over British culture. You can see it in the punk music of the 70s. Lots of people wearing red and black striped jumpers, which is the main motif of Dennis the Menace and Minnie the Minx, they wear red and black stripes. And you saw that picked up by like the Sex Pistols and the Damned and there's this sort of idea in the Beano, everything gets broken, everything's about smashing it up, everything's about the sort of destroying anything that looks like mild normality. So there was like a real, I'd say there's a direct influence into punk and DIY and even sort of, yeah, kind of noise music and stuff really but um in art it was a little harder to trace it's like in british pop art you don't see the beano it's not like there was collages by peter blake that had the beano in them or paolozzi or places that uh, you know they often the, the british pop artists loved the american comics but when you start to pick beneath the surface you started to see the beano as like a sensibility you start to see it as like an attitude or like a way of doing things that's like irreverent and a bit slapstick and a bit kind of deliberately dumb or like you know playing on words you know it's just like ah, oh, okay actually this is the Beano is it's it's sort of everywhere you know because it reflects British society of course it's like what I've been calling it's like unconscious or like the hidden hand of its influence can be seen throughout art and culture mm. and I also thought that obviously you know you're mentioning how the Beano is reflected in in British culture but what was quite interesting in the exhibition is that it also kind of worked the other way around. And obviously, you know, having been created in the 30s, it seemed that the Beano also has reflected Britain throughout this time. And, you know, not always positively. I mean, the first Beano, for instance, features, you know, a racist character. There are obviously negative gender stereotypes within there as well. How important was it for you to, to contextualise this within the exhibition? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting. That was certainly the challenge, because uh, you're right, the Beano, yeah, if you reflect society, you will always reflect, so, yeah, pick up a lot of it, the, the negative and, and the Beano at times, I mean, 
yeah, particularly in that period of the 40s, it did really, it was maybe a bit more open to the world around it in the sense that it also did strips about the war and like the war effort, you know, kind of the characters would fight fight the Nazis within the strips and things. But yeah, the negative, there was obviously a kind of, in the adventure stories particularly, there's this legacy of the colonial imagination, the British superiority that is a kind of, yeah, produce some ugly racial stereotypes. And we, you have to kind of make make sense of that in some way. It was a very, I mean, you can excuse the sense, it was a very minor part of the comic. There was like, very, it was actually quite slight considering how many, and also compared to a lot of the other comics at the time running parallel. But um, yeah, the Beano, it's funny because the Beano is like totally hermetic. In some ways it's his own world. It's like a closed comic. But in other ways it does, of course, reflect things just ever so gently. Like in the 60s you get, and 70s, uh, a lot of corporal punishment in the Beano. There's a lot of the kid, you know, the, lot of the final frame is the kids being caned or whacked with a slipper. And then gradually that fades away, but pretty much in tune with when it fades away in society. So actually, like, I think came surprisingly late when kind of corporal punishment disappears from state schools. It's like, you know, you think it's always, always later than you think. And it pretty much drops out of Beano around the same time. So... It's funny how something that on the one hand could seem like it's its own world is, of course, always like in conversation with the themes of the moment in some way. And obviously we have mentioned the negative stereotypes that that it is kind of portrayed within that. But it wasn't just negative. There were plenty of kind of positive moments that you can kind of pinpoint throughout British history. You know, for instance, you can see the reckoning with the British class system and even a bit later on, you know, the, the riot girl feminism movements as well. So I guess, you know, you have to kind of be fair and, you know, mention that it does also reflect positively in some ways as well, right? Yeah, and it's it's it does. Um, I would say on the, on the last point too, it's also constantly, you know, in terms of the recent evolution, it's been quite interesting. They got rid, there was a character called Fatty, you know, who's just loves to eat. And, and that did seem antiquated. And recently they've been like kind of renamed him Freddy. They've just ever, but it, it has, it moves incredibly incrementally, but what I'd say even about a character like that is this thing about them being comfortable and confident in whatever like body type or personality type you are. You are like, they kind of portray them as that being unquestionably kind of like almost reveling in that part of your personality rather than it being seen as negative. But yeah, there's some strong, the strong female characters was really early in the sense that Pansy Potter is like a proto-punk and that she appears in the first strip in like 38 so as with a spiky hairdo you know and is stronger than all the boys and can bend the world around her and then she sets up Minnie the Minx who really is a kind of yeah the sort of proto proto riot girl with uh just yeah stronger than the boys causing mayhem like the parent like adults can't rein her in you know but with a real cheeky like sparkle you know it's actually it's, there's almost an innocence to it as well there's almost a like a just a, a willful disregard for all conventions, you know, which is really liberating to read. And yeah, is is a really, and is embedded in a comic that is for both genders or all genders, you know. So you had strong male characters and strong female characters within one comic, which meant that both boys and girls read it. Um, and I think that that was also part of its power, I think, that you also, you know, you liked both the characters. And also some interest, like interesting characters that, digging out like Les Pretend, which was a character that ran when I read it in the 80s and 90s. It was a sort of almost of indeterminate gender who would invent himself or herself each week into like 
through essentially just like elaborately dressing up but becoming different objects becoming different things becoming different people we like switching switching genders and also i think the bino is like it's an ensemble piece right it's like it's like the you are on mass it makes up the, a whole personality but you don't like that in they you isolate these individual characters but like you always read all of it you always read all these different exaggerated parts of a personality and then together that makes up like almost like a normal brain or something and uh, all of them were kind of um yeah there was a sort of joy I guess to whatever it was even a joy to the pain of Calamity James you know being just bludgeoned by everything that can go wrong going wrong there was a kind of you would revel in the joy of that too so yeah it's it's it's, it's something it's something interesting there and it was hard it was hard to unpick what is um and uh then for kind of other and more like to explore this idea of cultural influence or this more kind of murky middle ground that's when I brought in the contemporary artworks and modern artworks to kind of pull out some of the themes and to find artists who would be influenced by the comic or their work had something in relation to comic to kind of stop it all just being drawings of comics on the wall you know so these these works help pull out the themes of the show and then I thought if I could make the whole thing feel like a Leo Baxendale early Bash Street Kids drawing, then then they're like it would probably please every, if you like the Beano, then you'd be happy with it. And that is about, yeah, cramming details into every corner and having different jokes wherever you look and uh, irreverence like from start to finish. So, but also to be like, to make it really in the spirit of the Beano, the minute you walk in, you're like, even the signage and everything makes you think, all right, this is not about the Beano. This is like in, I am, it's, it's sort of the B, in the same way that the Beano, right, the bit I loved about the Beano as a kid was that it kind of fictionalized its own making process. In the Beano, they would be seen reading the Beano or they would go to the editor's office to kind of complain about how a strip hadn't worked out. And so the Beano editor was in the Beano. So, and the Beano looked like it was made within itself. So I was like, oh, let's, let's use that idea for the exhibition too. So that like, it's not a show about the Beano. It's like a show in the Beano about the Beano. You're kind of always within it in some way. Thank you very much, Charlie. And the exhibition on Beano is on at the moment at Somerset House in London. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Brigitte Bardot and Serge Gainsbourg with Comic Strip. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time. It's goodbye from me. Viens, petite fille, dans mon comic strip. Viens, frère.